hello, hello to all of our dreamy, wonderful, smart, prepared listeners. We are so happy you came back to Octavia's Parables podcast, where we are reading Octavia E. Butler's classic text, one chapter at a time. We are currently in Mind of My Mind, which is book two of the Patternist series, and we're in part two, chapter five. But before we jump in to the story, my name is Adrienne Marie Brown, and I'm here with the beautiful and wonderful and brilliant Toshi Regan. Yay. I'm going to keep adding more and more um, <laughs> true words at the beginning here. You're so good. Thank you. <laughs> You're so good. Toshi, do you have any um, news for us, updates? Yeah. I mean, us? I will be doing this workshop on one of my projects, which is going to be around disco music. I don't know if you remember when we oh, did you, the podcast. I will never forget. And I love that every time you said, I don't know if you'll remember, like anyone could forget Toshi Regan disco like anything <laughs> like that's not happening no one is forgetting we're all awaiting it with bated breath so okay what's, so what's happening it has a title it's called you're having too much fun so we have to kill you <laughs> <laughs> and oh wow um, that's great thank you and so we will be having a, a beautiful i have a beautiful residency up at wesley Wesleyan, and we're going to get get down this summer. And then in the fall, we'll be doing a public-facing raw work in progress. we just getting off the ground situation. So that would be around October. This would be over, but just give it the vibes and the energy because um, it's going to be cool. And probably when this is up, we will be doing a amazing and beautiful, abundant fundraiser for Parable of the Sower, the opera so that we can continue our journey into 2023 and, uh, you know, 2024. So that'll be floating around the interwebs and everywhere. Mm, Um, mm -hmm. So look for us. So how many places have you done it now? Gosh, I don't know. You know, it's so weird. It's almost like starting over. But, you know, in the first couple of years, we had done four continents and over 10,000 people had seen it. Yeah. And, you wow. know, and then since then, you know, we've done it like a few more times and we stopped this spring, spring, summer, so we supposed to do it five times uh-huh. and we, and we lost one, mm-hmm. you know, because of COVID that we're doing next year. So we'll be out in Champaign-Urbana next year. We're going to come and see y'all. So, and get that in along with some other cities, which I'll be announcing very soon. Um, I think I can announce Berkeley, though, the Bay Area. I don't oh, ha- that's I don't have thrilling. Date, but yeah, that's we okay. should talk. They can do yeah. that. I was like, ooh. Because you know, I'm like, I feel like I'm, you know how back in the day people used to follow the Grateful Dead around <laughs> with like a, I have some, someone who's like brother used to follow the Grateful Dead around with a falafel truck and would like sell falafel at all their concerts. I feel like I'm becoming that person for the Parable of the Sower Opera. You're definitely one of us. For yes. Sure. I'm just sort yes. of like, hey, yes. <laughs> you can Anytime. find me after the show. I'm <laughs> 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 singing the songs. I will add to your news that I, I think I've mentioned here a few times I've been commissioned for a musical uh, from OSF Ashland, and it's been co commissioned by the St. Louis Rep, and mm-hmm. other places apparently are going to get in on it. But I have a name for it now. It's called To Feel a Thing. Songs nice. and Rituals of Emergence. And yes. 
there's going to be a residency this fall at the shed after which that'll be like the first public presentation of the songs. So I will keep people posted, but just be vibing in my direction because I'm having like the first time musical project feelings and it's so tender. It's such a beautiful, tender thing to like hear a song, feel a thing and then start going through a process by which many other people will play and sing and do things with that song. It's, yes. I love it. It's an incredible <laughs> journey. I yeah. love listening to like a lot of times the first versions of something and yeah. it's like very small. Maybe you sing it into a exactly. voice recording memo. device, a voice memo, <laughs> or, you know, like I'm, I'm here for my garage band demos and then boom, you're up on a stage and all kinds of things are happening. It's so cool. It's so cool. I'm really, I'm really enjoying the process of it all mm. becoming. So here we are. Looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm, 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 you're one of the people I'm most nervous <laughs> to hear it, but also most excited to hear it. Why? Because you know, you're like Toshi Regan, like I'm your like big deal. A geeky fan of good things, so you have no worries. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but the word good, I was like, ah, see? Okay. <laughs> it's already good, boo. It's already good. It seemed like it was good when you went into your, your recorder and went la, la, la. la it's la, good. La, la, la. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I also have to say, the aliveness of creating something, like even being nervous about some someone, that's there's such aliveness for me in that, mm -hmm. right? Like I, I don't get nervous around facilitation anymore. I don't really get nervous if I'm going to speak to people. I definitely don't get nervous for our podcast. You know, like yeah. I, like these all feel like, oh, I know what's going to happen. I trust us. It's going to be excellent. I love it. Mm. But this is like, oh, I could really fuck up I could it could be great who knows it's just it's really <laughs> exciting it feels enlivening um, I think it's because it's also your first that was like your your first love like you were on your exactly. way to be doing this exactly and then it's like so it's it's also yeah. what the you know the floweriness <laughs> of it being realized yes exactly it feels yeah. like this is my transition <laughs> I was like Mary <laughs> this shit's hard <laughs> it's great um all right <sighs> so let's let's Mary is laying oh. on a bed somewhere, and I think you can tell us what's happening. Well, I can tell you this is <laughs> this is chapter five, right? We hear. I love this chapter. I call this kind of the um, Oprah chapter because of how hard Mary is like Doro. Like, what is all of this about? So you should know that Carl and, and Mary are together. She made it through her transition, but Carl is is not okay. And he does not like like that he is attached to a pattern. And so he is very resistant and very, very upset about that. And, oh, I should say this. The pattern is a problem for Carl. Um, but for Mary, it is not a problem at all. She's very comfortable. She, you know, it's not uh, irritating to her. Like of all the ways that she would describe something, it, she doesn't say it's bad. She just says, I can't, I don't know how to to make it not happen, and which is her truth. And she asked Doro some really, you know, powerful questions. She asked him, like, what are we here for? You know, what are we for? And I think that's, that's what gets the whole thing, you know, started. And when she asked Doro this question, you know, they're at some place eating and they're chilling and Doro's eating food and he's a white man. 
And she says, with these deep blue eyes, she's like, you know, like, what is this? Like, why are you doing this? And she says, like, you have so many of us, you know, there's so many of his children and his offspring is running around and why, why, why? So is it like, so you have something to do? Is, is it like, you know, are you just playing around? And he's like, that's part of it, but he's not sure that she would understand. And so she is prying, you know, like, is this about having family? Is this about building community? What, 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 what? And she's like, what about your name? Like, <laughs> you know, you got this one name, Doro, where's that? And then he's like, this is the name my, my parents gave me. And he's, she's like, where, where did you live? He says he lived along the Nile in a village along, along the Nile. She's thinking it's Egypt. And he explains to her that, nope, that the Egyptians were their enemies and that they were ruled by them. And then they were not ruled by them. And then they've been trying to rule them ever since. And this is so cool to Mary because Mary's like, you black, you black. And <laughs> y'all know how much, you well, maybe all of y'all don't know, but for black people to find out you black is like really a big you deal. You black, black, all the way back to black. You black, 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 you, black. you black, you black, you black. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so she's very happy to find out, you know, that he's black, but he's like, I'm not black. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, yeah, he says, you know, it doesn't matter because I haven't been any color at all for about 4,000 years. Or you could say I've been every color, but either way, I don't have anything more in common with black people, Nubian or otherwise, than I do with whites or Asians. And then like, she is- Don't humanize me. Yeah, don't you be cannot. trying this. Is, and she, but she's not here for that. She's like, you mean you don't want to admit you have anything in common with us, but if you were born black, you are still black. She's like- mm just sounding like a revolutionary from like 1967 right now. <laughs> She's exactly. like, you know, and he's like, well, if it's going to make you feel better, like you could, you could say I'm black. I, he really doesn't care. And ultimately he doesn't care because he's like, I'm not human, you know? And right. this, and so I, I'm not, you know, I was born into this black body as a child, but when I transition, I ceased to be human. I died. So what is he if he's not human? Is he a ghost? You know, what is Doro? And mm. that that exploration is takes up a lot of this chapter. It's a really great chapter to read. I'm hoping everybody will read the whole book. But as you're reading along with us, you want to dig into this. It's a lot of information about Doro and his and his journey and how he was born and and had his transition at 13 and of course didn't know anything about it and immediately took his parents and then immediately started taking people all over the place and then had this 50 year blank that he can't remember and woke up in a pretty disgusting jail in Egypt and kind of started to begin his Doro journey from there. So she asked him really good questions about like when did he like start to think about making people and he says breeding you mean breeding and she didn't like thinking about people as breeding but mm-hmm. he says i came to the conclusion that i was cursed that i had offended the gods and was being punished but after i had used my ability a few times deliberately and seen i could have absolutely anything i wanted i changed my mind 
I decided that the gods had favored me by giving me power. And this is when he decided he could make his own race of people. Yeah. Or he started to, to do that. And he was able to uh, recognize people, kinds of people that he would get the most pleasure from if he took them. And of course, she is like, that's absolutely disgusting. Um, but she wants to know. Yeah, <laughs> no, like, well, tell me more, tell me more. Yeah, tell me more. And <laughs> he's like, tell it's me like, it's, yeah, I want to know everything. <laughs> he says, it's all very basic. One kind of people gave me more pleasure than other kinds. So I tried to collect several of that kind I liked and keep them together. That way they would breed and I would always have them available when I needed them. And she's like, so they are food. And he's like, people with a certain mental sensitivity, people who have the beginnings at least or some unusual abilities. I found them in every race I encountered, but I never found them in a very, in very large numbers. So these are the people he liked the most. These are the, as he says, taste the best. And this is where we start to get into the area of where he discovers actives and he's trying to build like this active race of people, yeah. but actives don't really like each other. And so it has been very, very, very hard. She's like, do you still, are they still just good food and, and, and that you just want? But he says, some of my latents are, but my actives and potential actives are part of another project and they have been for some time. And this is where he says to build a race, build people, build a race. And so this is where Mary and Doro meet. She is the person that is the achievement, even though Doro doesn't know it at this point and Mary doesn't know it at this point. Yeah. So he's saying, well, to get an active, I have to bring together people of two different latent families, people who repel each other so strongly that I have to take one of them to bring them together. That means all the actives of each generation are my children. So maybe the answer is, you know, a little bit of both. And this is him answering to, is is it about building a race? Is it about right. him having potential food and, and enjoying the taste of different people? But, and I think this is why Doro, if you've been reading along, this is why Doro has so many children. Yes. Is that he can't get the actives to actually be together. He has to take one of them. And then he ends up being the father and then eventually marrying sometimes all of the other things that he does. Gross. Tell me more. Yeah. Doro is. <laughs> yep. Doro then wants to know about Mary's transition. And he wants to know, like, what she can do with the pattern. Yeah. So he's like, can you tell, like, where they are? And she, yeah, she can tell where they are because they're all, like, heading to her. And he says, do you know their names? And she's like, <laughs> he's like, well, I can tell them apart. I know their names. He said, the more I concentrate on them, the more I find out about them. And she, he's like, how, she's like, how much do you want to do? And he's like, well, there's Rachel Davidson, a healer. She's some relation to Emma. She works in churches, pretending to be a faith healer, but faith doesn't have anything to do with it. She and, you know, Doro is actually like, no, just, just tell me actually literally their names. And so she does. She, <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> she's like, you know, here's Jess and Jan and Ada and Seth. And then there's something strange about Seth. There's something wrong with him, but it's not something wrong with him. It's that he brought along his brother, Carl, and she yes. can sense Carl as well. Yeah. So, you know, he's like, but they're all shielded. So how can you tell who they are? 
And she said, everybody shielded except for Seth. And she can still do it. And then Doral's like, well, do you have a problem with that? Like, you just went and read through people's shields. And she's like, yeah, I guess I did. She's very unaware of her power at this point. Yeah. Um, so she's like, but they're all coming. She finds out here that, that actives don't always have, like, good futures. And that many times they just die from the amount of things they can sense, and especially if they're anywhere near each other. And so there's a nervousness about all of these actives coming to one place and what's going to happen. And Mary doesn't seem to be worried about that because, you know, she doesn't know why, but it's because of her. It's because of Mary. It's Mary's the container. So they go through this whole conversation about Carl and Carl helping her through the transition and who Carl is and how strong he is and all of these things and that he's involved with the pattern as well and that he can't get out of it. And a little bit about Vivian, which we will hear more about later. So she finds out that even though Carl is uh, super strong and not as strong as Doro, that she could have easily killed him during the transition. Mm. And this is her getting an understanding of like how powerful she is. And she wants to know, she wants to know how to avoid trying to to kill people or is that going to be impossible? And that's the question I want to answer to. That's what I'm curious about. More than curious, your predecessors never trapped more than one active at a time. Their first was always the one who had helped them through transition. They always needed help to get through transition. If they didn't provide it, they died. On the other hand, if I did provide it sooner or later, they killed the person who would have been there to help them. They never wanted to kill, and especially they didn't want to kill that person, but they couldn't help themselves. They got hungry and they killed. Then they latched onto another active, drew them in, and went through feeding process again. Unfortunately, they always killed other actives. So did, you know? then she wants to know, do they trade bodies? the way Doro does, and Doro says they don't. And so Mary doesn't want to do that. She doesn't want to do that, you know. But basically, um, Doro is setting her up and says, look, these people are coming and these are going to be your people. Yeah. And Mary has to take that in, that they're they're going to be the, her people. But at the same time, Doro says, you belong to me. So I'm not giving up anything when I give you charge of them. They're yours as long as you can handle them without killing them. And this is a whole switch of dynamic in their relationship. I am sure Doro is a little bit thinking that she is very, very, very powerful, like oh, in yeah. a certain kind of way. But he is like, you are going to have to like get it together and like yeah. take charge of this. And he's kind of training her getting her to a place where he wants her to really be in charge of this group of people. And Mary is, Mary is uh, very bold and y'all know got like the mouth on her and everything. But I think secretly inside Mary's like, Oh shit, like, how am I going to do this? And I'm not going to give you the, yes, it's very scary. I'm not going to give you all the details, but this chapter ends with Carl and Carl is not in a good place. Carl is out you know, with Vivian and just in a mess. And so him and Vivian get into it. They get into a fight. 
which ends up being violent. He ends up beating up, beating her up. And then at the end of the fight, and this, all of this energy is about him being in the pattern. He's frustrated. He's angry. But at the end of the fight, like, you know, first Vivian is like, if you don't want me around, let me go. Then he's like, you can't go. And then when she's like trying to go, he beats her up. And then he, after he beats her up, he's like, writes her a check. And he's like, you know, the check must have been a huge check. And she's like, I'm not leaving. I'm staying. Yeah. And this chapter ends on that, like, very But there's something, note. I there was something in that section that feels important to me to uplift. Please. I want to talk about, which is, at one point, she says, you would probably sleep with Doro if he wanted yes. you to. Which <laughs> I, I thought that that was just really, it was just this powerful, I feel like a lot is happening around patriarchy in this book mm-hmm. and around masculinity toxic and otherwise like there's just something about the power dynamics of Doro with his people is like he takes whatever he wants and you serve him and and then for the men in these in this larger Doro Mm -hmm. world they always have to know that they're in someone else's power which for you know it's like in every other part of their world all these men have their own little harems of women, cabals of women, groups of women, pets. They call them all these different names for the women. And Carl thinks he's transcended that in some way. He has Vivian and that he actually loves her. And then this happens. And it just feels really important to me to name it. That's like under pressure. When a pressure against his masculinity comes, when pressure against his actual power comes, he takes it out on her. And she flips it back on him and is like, you you don't have any more power than I do to resist this person. Like, stop tripping. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not yeah. going anywhere. We None of us have power. That's where we are, you know? Yeah. Um, know even though I was like, girl, get out of there. You're not one of these people. <laughs> like, yeah, like I, I don't you understand why you're here. But yeah. It shows but also I'm like, you know, Doro has power over everyone, not just his is. people. And I think that that's really important. It, it shows in these little hints, right? Yeah, I love that part too because, you know, Carl pulls this out his ass. Like he, Carl's like, you know, and you were with Doro. Like, so like he's getting angrier and angrier. And then he's now, he's going to be like, you slept with another man. And she's like, you've been sleeping with <laughs> everybody and you would sleep with Doro if you, if, if he wanted you to. So stop, stop playing, stop tripping. But it, it doesn't, it doesn't end well for her. But I love that she, you know, it might be this, the last, uh, independent thought of Vivian, you know, for a long yeah, time without, exactly. you know, so power, power to her. Yeah. Ooh. All right. So I have a lot of questions in this chapter and, and starting out, I mean, a lot of it really is about how relationship works. So Octavia, throughout all of her work, she gives us so many relationships where intimacy is flanked by harm in some way. And especially in this pattern of series that in almost every relationship where people are paired or partnered in some way, there's also a toxic or abusive or harmful dynamic playing out that they, they all feel powerless. Like Doral's Mm -hmm. like the only person who really feels powerful. So I want to ask you all to really reflect on that, right? What is Octavia critiquing here? What is she trying to shine a light on here? Make sure you don't miss it. Make sure you turn and look at 
all the things. Think about when Octavia was writing this, how much has changed, how little has changed <laughs> in that time. Because I always feel like Octavia writes all of her text in some ways as a warning. And this one feels like, it's like, oh, like, how do these toxic relational dynamics allow for this pattern of harm? And one example of this is in the opening of this chapter, Mary is noticing that Carl basically sat by, like she could have been killed and Mm -hmm. she's been in danger. And she's wondering to herself, at what point would that allowing her to be in danger or allowing her to potentially be killed? At what point could that transition to him actually wanting to kill her because of Mm -hmm. the pattern and because of his resistance to it? And then like in the next breath, she's like, I want to be his only wife. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, you know, so, so many places throughout the text, we see these dynamics where someone will have an awareness about the violence inherent in someone, have an awareness about the harm that they want to cause and could cause directly to them, often the women. And then the women also are like, and then I slept with him or, and then I deepened into the relationship or then I made another commitment or then he stayed. And it just feels so important that Octavia is really pushing us into these waters because it feels like she's pushing us to look at all of our intimate relationships for where is intimacy flanked by harm and how does that uphold structures that we don't Mm -hmm. want to be a part of. So I think just to ask yourself, why does Mary want this monogamous relationship with Carl, who she's been forced into a relationship with, doesn't seem to really like, he doesn't like her, and there's a violent potential? What is the connection between trauma and these intimate relationships and these um, monogamous relationships? Yeah. Yeah. And I love that there's this whole section where basically we get to see the childlike version of Mary, where she's just like, but why, 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 why? (laughs) Like, what are we for? What do we look like? How are we born? Yeah. Tell me everything. And it feels very much like uh, the question I wrote here is why the main question we all have for God, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you're sitting with someone who seems to be a God or, or could be perceived that way, you know, is that the main question? And it's something I want you all to just think about is like, what is the question you have or hold for whoever you feel created this world? Mm-hmm. Um, is it a variation on why? Are there other questions you have? Mm. I know for me, I, it, that's the one that I'm like, ah, like if I can acknowledge that I, that's the question that will be there my whole life, I can find some peace with it. And I'm like, right. there, there's this greater question about why we exist the way that we exist and why do we exist with such trouble that will not be resolved in my lifetime, but I will ask it every day. Mm-hmm. And it feels like a divine question, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, Mary's getting to have this question and answer period with someone who maybe has some divinity. Mm. And then the other question I have is, does context help us understand our abusers or those who cause us harm. Mm. It feels as I'm reading this, you know, that it's like, ooh, does it do anything when you learn about, oh, right, he was 13 years old when this happened and he had no idea what it was. He had caused immense harm, blacked out, and was cut off from everything he knew. And 
does that context give you any softness for Doro? Any spaciousness for what Doro has become? Does it feel like, oh, but there were other options? Like, can you, you know, when you look at his story, can you imagine mm-hmm. your 13-year-old self awakening to a power in this way and what that path would look like for you? I want people to think about it. I think that there's so often this way that we're like, the bad people are bad. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. just the bad people, you know? And it's like, do we believe in that? Do we believe in just the bad people? Or do we believe in these monstrous systems and patterns that develop harm? Right? Yeah. <laughs> and then this question, I actually want you to answer, Toshi, which is, what do you think at this point in the story, what do you think Doro is? Hmm. Well, I really like the way he described himself as not being human. You know, like I actually, you know, because especially since she was so, you know, adamant, oh, you black, you black. And I think that's that's really important that he was like, I'm not a human. <laughs> and that, that actually gave a lot of... Yeah you know, a, a, a lot of range into like why he does some of the things that he does, you know, that he is just not, he's not a part of the yeah. species. He's his own species. He's his own thing. I also like the ghost that like, maybe that's the closest thing, mm. but I was like a ghost of what? Exactly. Like you didn't, you know, like what, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, I think he's an entity with the capability to inhabit um, human bodies. I like the parasite one yeah. analogy too, a lot. But, I, you know, he's he has so much more range mm-hmm. of possibilities than, like, he's not one-dimensional. So it, it just makes me think he doesn't have a brain. Yeah. So, like, he often makes me think of the way people think of God's. And the gods have like these different personalities. You know, there's the one that gets angry about certain things. There are the ones that, you know, very loving around certain things. There's ones that take care of certain things. This is the God of the Mm -hmm. ocean. This is the God of the war. This is the God of this. And this is the God of that. And I was like, what's Doro the God of this? Like, you know, and the the God of people, humans, (laughs) like he actually creates, you know, he actually creates people and people wouldn't exist without him. Well, and I, it's kind of, yeah. I think he's a God of evolution, but I mm. think of it in the God sense of, you know, one of the things I've actually really appreciated about how the, the like Marvel Avenger, all those movies have played out is that there's always mm-hmm. this aspect of like, those that seem like gods to us are often alien. And so it's like, they have powers but they have powers because they come from other places and they show up right. as divine forces because what they have as powers are so different from what we have. So I think that's one context that I am like, oh yeah, Doro, like whatever he is, came from some other evolutionary, um, some something extra human, extraterrestrial, and something of Earth that mm-hmm. bonded. But then I also think I've been really thinking this reading. I've done so much different work around trauma. And I'm also like, Doro is just a traumatized child. Like Doro is a traumatized Mm -hmm. child who dissociates and then takes advantage of the world 
in order to survive, right? And slips into whatever personality, whatever shape, whatever body he needs to in order to do that. But I feel like there are Doros <laughs> in the world, you know? Like I look at, mm-hmm. I, I keep finding myself looking at this moment in human history and being like, we are being led by Doros. We are being led mm-hmm. by people who yes. have trauma that was never addressed and kind of disconnected from the human experience or feeling like that humanity was something that would shift their behavior or something that they felt they needed to protect in any way. And it becomes purely transactional, purely manipulative. So yeah, I think Doro is, is the traumatized child who never gets therapy, (laughs) you know? So, you know, he really needed to be in his body longer. Oh my God. You know, it's wrong. Like what happened, the whatever violation happened to him, it's like, all of these lifetimes of centuries of centuries, nothing has made it right. Nothing has been able to return him to his humanity. Yeah. That's why I think um, also maybe why once uh, Anyamu says she's going to kill her, herself because mm. she's like done mm-hmm. with him, you know, and he breaks down. It could be the one time that you saw yes. him relate to that child yes. because She's the, you know, she's everything. She's the everything. Yeah. Yeah. And then she, you know, so. Yeah. And I think it does. It makes to me, it always makes so much sense why Anyanwu is so meaningful to him, both because. Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't want to kill her, like because it's like he even in him, I think that must be such a unique experience to be like, I don't want to kill this person. I really want to protect this person. And she doesn't have to die. Like there's a possibility that I don't have to be alone in the way that I have been alone, which I think is the fundamental longing of all humans is like to be known what, you know, whether it's by a place or by a people. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. But so readers, you know, those who are reading along with us really think for yourselves, what do you think Doro is and what does that unveil about your worldview? What does that unveil about your beliefs do you know any Doros, <laughs> you know, or do you feel like you survived a Doro phase? You know, do you feel like there was ever mm-hmm. a time when you were taking without being able to give and yeah, what's going on there? I have two more questions for this one. So the next one is, which was like, ding, ding, ding. I'm always, I always have these moments where I'm like, dang, I need to be a vegan. Um, So this is one of them where <laughs> does hearing Doro speak about breeding humans through death and forced sexual encounters make you think differently at all about breeding animals, period? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it made me think about it differently. <laughs> you know, uh, I remember the first time I read this and just being like, God, breeding is so horrific. You know, it's like, even if you're saying, oh, we're bringing together species that do want each, you know, they're they're coming together and they want to be together, whatever. The idea that we're not leaving that up to nature, but that we are creating these sort of coerced, first forced scenarios. And we, you know, because of the way we communicate, have no way of knowing how is this all playing out? Is this you know, what these creatures would want or not want? And then... At the largest level, the, you know, mass production breeding of animals that leads to our Mm -hmm. food systems, our milk systems, our egg systems, right, is there's a ton of death built into that structure. Like so many creatures have to die or be miserable. And so I think we should all be vegan. 
So that's the, that's what this chapter taught me. Um, <laughs> anything you want to share <laughs> on that, Toshi? I got nothing because <laughs> it's just all true. Yeah. You know, it's all true. We're, we're very out of balance with the world. We have to untangle ourselves in such deep ways. And, you know, yeah. as we, you know, get on our transformational journey, you know, we have to we have to do a lot of things. And there are going to be a lot of things we're not going to want to do. Well, and I want to point to some occasionally these moments happen where like the different podcasts I'm on cross paths with each other. And for Mm -hmm. the Emergent Strategy podcast, we recently interviewed two different people, uh, Lin Yidwan and then Kasha Ho, and both were talking about food systems in different ways. So Lin Yi was talking about like what what would it actually look like to create a sustainable food system in the future. Um, She runs the Mm -hmm. magazine Mold and is really just exploring this in really innovative ways. And then Kasha Ho was talking about fermentation and really understanding the body as an ecosystem of all these bacteria and so much happening. And that like our food system is designed right now to kill all the bacteria, including the ones that are good for us. And like, it really makes it hard for us to be healthy ecosystems onto ourselves or with each other. But it got, it gets me excited. Cause I'm like, yeah, what is, I always asking that question, like what is the right relationship to have with our food? Because even plants are alive and we're just they're like, I want to kill you now and eat you. So, um, you know, yeah. <laughs> what is the what is the appropriate it's true. collateral? It's true. And even then we've even when, you know, I and I, and I think all of this conversation is, you know, um connected to capitalism and production, because even when good things are discovered, they're like siphoned off, mass yeah. produced as something. And they come like I remember when only lesbians had echinacea. <laughs> it was just always like the cool older lesbian. Somebody would be like, they feel like you want this echinacea and golden seal. It'll mm. get rid of your cold. And then like <laughs> I, the first time I saw it, like in a, a you know, not in yeah, that yeah, the yeah. weird store that you didn't want to go to because your yeah. mom would make you, <laughs> yeah. Make you put everything in a plastic, <laughs> in a paper bag. She's you like, know, there was no, there was no packaging. We no just like bulk everything. <laughs> We'd be in there. My mom would be like, "No, we're gonna gonna go to this co-op and mm-hmm. and get food." You know, she wouldn't let us have no wow. sugar or nothing. So, but time. anyway, I, yeah, she was she was just like, "That's bad for you." She and wasn't um, yeah, but. <laughs> You know, but it it just I was like when I saw Golden Seal and Echinacea in a, like <laughs> what yep. I'll call a regular store. Gentrification. I was like, wow, <laughs> how did that get there? No, it is capitalism <laughs> gentrification though. Generally, I always it always yeah. makes me like happy yeah. sad because I'm so, like, yes, this thing is more available, and I'm like, shit, that means it's probably being over harvested yeah. and like produced in ways that are not sustainable. So. Like Whole Foods is owned by the richest man in the world, and Look, it's just it is it is literally what it is. It's or the second richest. I can't now, keep track amongst these top three. I, I mean, you can't keep cares? track of these long, these yeah. stupid. So, um, <laughs> but those are all Doros to me. Anyway, so, yeah. um, I appreciate you engaging in that with me because I I really am I'm thinking about it so much, even in my own practice of food and sustaining myself and you know I've been reading a bunch about like how to create a healthy ecosystem of my body you know and Mm -hmm. getting really like scientific you know like I'm like Adoro is being a scientist but about 
what can he create between all these different people? And I'm like, that feels egregious and harmful to me. I feel like what feels healing is how can I be a scientist about myself and like the environment around me? And how can I source my life locally? And how can I do as little harm as possible? You know, like mostly I'm down to fish these days anyway. And I'm like, okay. Having had some fish in my house, I was like, I don't know that they have a great consciousness of awareness of what's happening, but I'm sure someone amongst our listeners mm. will help me even gain understanding around it, you know? All right. So you then I think the final question I have for this one, and we can wrap up, is just as you're reading this chapter and listening, do you see love anywhere in this chapter? Mm. There's a lot of relating there's a lot of intimacy. There's a lot of reliance and formation. But do you see love? Hmm. I know Mary loves black people. Mary loves some black people. Mary loves She's like, some you know what you people. are is black. You're black. So You was born black, you black. I don't care if you a ghost. I love that shit. She's <laughs> like, you a black ghost then. Okay. Yeah. Casper Noir. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all oh right, so Octavia's Parables is hosted by myself, Adrian Marie Brown, and my beloved Toshi Regan. Our producer is Kat Aaron. Our show art is from Krista Franklin. We are being transcribed this summer by Jess Pinkham and Sarah Rubens-Breen. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Oparables and on patreon.com slash Oparables. Transcripts for all episodes are live at readingoctavia.com. Music for Octavia's Parables is You Don't Know the Time, written and performed by Toshi Regan, and so are written by Bernice Johnson Regan, performed by the cast of Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Memorial Hall. My head. See you next Mm -hmm. time, loves. Bye. A sower went out to sow her seed. A sower went out to sow her seed.